This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm great, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, there's some wonderful holidays, and uh, now I'm in Paris, and uh, oh. so yeah, life is uh, life is good. It's uh, some exciting things. I went to the uh, Weights and Measures Museum today. Oh, <laughs> did you? Little... Yeah, you saw the the one kilogram weight, the one kilo. <laughs> I, I th- a lot of them actually, not not just one of them. Just, I don't know. Right. I don't think we saw a definitive one, but we saw a lot of like one kilo, one meter kind of things. Yeah, <laughs> so that was really cool. And uh, yeah, really enjoying it. Uh, how about you? I'm good. I also just celebrated the holidays, and so enjoying a good time right before the new year hits us. Uh, but yeah, I'm here to enjoy our last pad- podcast of 2023. So who do we have on yeah. the show? Well, today we've got Stefan Ritt. And uh, Stefan, well, actually, I, I, I just learned this actually by looking at his LinkedIn. Uh, he, got, he, he, he worked first at the prototyping shop of Dawa Echwes, which is a, a coffee uh, company. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and so that I didn't know. And then so, so maybe he got his start at 3D printing then. But if he didn't, then a couple of years later, he worked at MTT Technologies. In 1998, he started there. And MTT is a storage firm in 3D printing that later was split up and, and was one of the the core founders of the, the metal powder bed fusion uh, technologies. Uh, later when he worked for SME, 2014, 2015. Uh, then he worked for SLM Solutions, um, which is a, well, a split off of MTT again from 2011 to 2018. Uh, he ended up being the VP of uh, Global Marketing Communications at SLM uh, before doing a whole bunch of stuff. Like he worked at Three Your Mind, he worked at lots of working groups and things with the EU. I uh, did some uh, time at Speed 3D as well, uh, things like that. And uh, now he's uh, kind of what well, consultant and uh, kind of doing, uh, advising a whole bunch of different firms and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, he's got a wealth of experience and uh, uh, been an AMUG member for over 12 years now as well. So he's very active in that community as well. And uh, so, yeah, so it's an absolute honor to have uh, Stefan uh, on the show today. Uh, welcome, Stefan. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. A whole lot of things we tried to push this industry when it was pretty small is still, right, <laughs> to what it is today and beyond. Yeah, it was exciting times. Bit of a roller coaster thing, yeah. So, so did, you, did you, when you were back at Dow Echwes with the prototyping shop, did you come into contact with 3D printing then, or was that before... It, it was actually was... A, a little. It was actually a little bit later. At the time at Dow Experts, uh, we did a lot of manual work, like uh, well gluing together plastic pieces, uh, which had been handicrafted before. Uh, you see the the plastic three uh, D printing, if you might say plastic, yeah, a polymer three D printing uh, that started to come uh, to Europe uh, in the early to mid nineties. Uh, it first was issued in the U.S. by Stratasys and 3D Printing. And then after they had penetrated the U.S. market, they, they brought it to the U.S. I think uh, Land Rover Jaguar in the U.K. were one of the first to get an SLA machine over. And then uh, Mercedes-Benz and BMW, powered then by uh, EOS of Munich, they uh, they also started then early to mid of 90s to use that to do prototypes. But those were days when a, a liter of resin... Uh, would cost you 500, 600 or something. Yeah. So people were very hasty to use it uh, instead of uh, the real plastics they had 
uh, from the traditional manufacturing processes like injection molding, uh, vacuum forming, and stuff. So we were more first, the handicraft people. Yeah. So so for some for some people, the resin still costs five hundred to six hundred a liter. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. All yeah, the super special stuff that can't make any other way. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so and then and so it's kind of weird. So so what you did first, you were the prototyping shop. Then you worked for a vending machine company, a payment kind of. POS systems company. Yeah, that, that is actually up. the payment the payment systems, yeah. the coin mechanisms. That was yeah. when we started to use 3D printing because oh, okay. a, a lot of plastic parts uh, in the coin mechanisms, they were so delicate uh, and fine. And uh, yeah, how to say uh, the, the three-dimensional shape of the parts uh, to be assembled together uh, without the necessity uh, of investing into an injection mold, which you would scrap up a few parts because you found out it wasn't the right design. Uh, that is where it really kicked in. This was like the the middle, late 90s. Uh, and then when that made me move also into that further, when, when you said MTT and before it was MCP Hack, the, the name of the company. So I spent a total of 20 years and a few days in what is today's SLM from... Uh, so. And then what a lot of people don't know is uh, we were not in the early days, we were manufacturing vacuum casting machines a lot, also a lot on the US market. And whenever 3D Systems was selling an SLA system, practically we were selling a vacuum casting chamber for the reason being that SLA those days was so slow and the resin was so expensive and the resin was sort of brittle and had a, had a low choice of variance uh, for the mechanical properties. So you would take two component polyurethanes to replicate the first part in silicone molding. And this was a safe sale. We, we gave over 2000 systems to the world. Yeah. So, and a lot of people even thought we would be part of uh, 3D systems. And then in the, in, in the review later, uh, even 3D systems, when we had the metal systems uh, from the early 2000s, uh, 3D systems became the early distribution partner in the US uh, for the German uh, laser powder bed systems. So it was quite very close relation between the few players in the market at that time. Yeah, but And then if we look at like the, the, the history of, uh, well, the history of powder bed fusion is a bit complicated because it's got a bunch of different people inventing it, essentially. Yep. Um, uh, but the history of metal powder bed fusion, also kind of complicated because my short version is this, and you'll disagree with it, but my short version is actually the Swedish invented it. <laughs> And then a whole bunch of Germans got together and made it better. And then they ended up disagreeing with each other and all forming their different companies to compete with each other. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a little bit. So, okay, my 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 version of that would be uh, you, you've got to separate a little bit between laser powder bed fusion, electron beam melting, and uh, uh, wire arc as, as, as well as DED was with the powder. So uh, what what turns out to be the most used these days is the laser powder bed fusion by, by various companies, of course. Yeah. So um, that was actually in the early, uh, and I think that's confirmed by patent uh, uh, filing, in 1993, 1994, the Fraunhofer Institute's ILT in Aachen in Germany, together with Krupp and Essen, with uh, EOS of Munich, uh, with Trump and a few German partners, they actually patented that process uh, in, in a group of partners, which then later on brought uh, different uh, companies. 
uh, to use that as their own. Also in France, of course, uh, with Phoenix uh, later on add up then, yeah. So, uh, so it's quite interesting for listeners who, who might not know that is that uh, what is today's Renishaw, today's SLM solutions, and today's DMG Mori, formerly Realizer. This is all from one source at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so at the, originating from the University of Paderborn, Dr. DJ Schwarze, Dr. Matthias Fockele, who joined that. So, uh, so it stays a little bit in the inbreed industry, if I might say that, and players move. And with the players, the patent rights and the knowledge and the build-up of machines move a little bit. Yeah, and, and I was lucky and happy to be two-thirds of my engineering life being part of it globally. Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah eventually the found-off thing was a collective development. It was a really difficult technology at the time. Lasers weren't that good, and nobody Correct. knew any of the variables. It has a lot of variables, so there's a lot of time needed, a lot of money. AOS, we all know, they've pretty much had the same thing. But you're right to point out the Realizer was a smaller competitor, really specialized in dental for a long time. DMG mm -hmm. bought them and had patent access and basis for that family. Then, of course, Phoenix Systems, uh, well, was acquired by uh, 3D Systems as well, right? But also that patent access, I think, went to add up, right? Yeah. It's, it's so funny with, with that, yeah. uh, from what I know. I mean, I don't know at all. But uh, from what I know is you, you're perfectly right. The team... Uh, of Phoenix uh, was acquired by 3D Systems. A lot of them moved to the U.S. With all due respect to say the um, uh, say the mentality differences between the French and the U.S. people were not working out perfectly. I hope that is politely put. Yeah. <laughs> so in well, parallel, in parallel, the the AdUp uh, company, which was powered by Michelin Thieves, which was one of the major customers before for the tire molding, uh, so they. Uh, they build up this uh, new company, add up with uh, also the power of fusion. And so, if I'm informed correctly, some of the people returned from the 3D system adventure back to France to work with add up. And the same time then, well, we had some other stuff going on as well but with um, well, the Electrolux stuff. Let's say. And then, yeah. well, then, of course, uh, we had uh, MCP, right? Then became MTT and split yep, into Renishaw, the English version of Renishaw. I remember at the time, this is really funny. Uh, at the time, we all thought that MTT was dead. <laughs> yeah, agree. No, no, absolutely agree. And, and and I think it's not it's not a company secret to say that in the early two thousands, the major sales uh, into so called rapid prototyping then were vacuum casting and investment metal casting machines, and it was between one and five machines SLM to the world at that time. So it, it could not justify. Uh, a bigger operation in the company. However, the uh, the, the private owners Hans Joachim Ide and the Hannah Schöneborn was a ten percent shareholder. The two guys uh, they they had the focus. We say this is going to be the future, and we want to invest into the future. Well, finally, leading into uh, the IPO on 9th of May 2014, it was if I remember it right. Uh, bring, bringing a company with a, with 90 people making. 18 to 20 million euros turnover, 185 million overnight from the stock exchange. So that was sort of the start of the big boost of these things then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and that was also powered, of course, by GE buying Morris. 
and yep. taking all this capacity offline, which meant that all these service bureaus in the same time all needed new machines because everybody was out of a partner because GE was only printing for itself. Yep. So then there was a <laughs> the first good thing GE did for everyone <laughs> was create a complete run on machines, which caused a boom and all the service bureau guys were full. They all bought machines. They couldn't buy from GE yet. And they were all a bit like, mm-hmm, what do we do? And so then they, they then you know, with an HL250, I think the order book for SLM was full and yeah, then I correct. Think everything, yeah, it went crazy. And I remember, like, for years, the ALS guys were just, like, in, like, no, no, not right now. It was, like, kind of, like, more, they were, like, sales guys, but really they were, like, that person at the club that decides who gets in at the Bergheim, you know? <laughs> not you. No, no, no. I'll say that. You can say that. It was very, it was very uh, person-focused uh, for Dr. Hans Langer and family style of management. I think that's not... Uh, it's, it's not a negative thing to say about them. It, it was the way the company worked, correct. However, that was the same with SLM until after the uh, IPO uh, when an external management stepped in. Yeah, that's when it changed. Okay, but when you joined it, that was like in the very, very beginning days of the MTT yeah. part of this. So there was a part before where there were basically a bunch of guys kind of in a garage type of situation kind of thing. Yeah, right? they, they, um, you, you say that correctly, Joris. It was... Uh, the company was uh, MCP stood for mining and chemical products, and the company majorly uh, was a chemical uh, production company uh, for uh, bismuth alloys and bismuth uh, chemicals as a pre-product for lots of pharmaceutical and others. So we were one of the prime for for those uh, listeners in the in the US uh, in little northern German Lübeck. We were one of the prime producers uh, for the basic ingredients of Pepto Bismol, the the stomach juice, yeah, the pink thing, yeah. Okay. So and yeah. uh, and we produce tons and tons and tons of that every month uh, to be shipped by air freight to the U.S. And the uh, the so-called tooling department were ten to fifteen people out of three hundred fifty. The rest was making chemicals, uh, and that got that got sold on to a third-party Belgium company first, C-SA, and they bought the MCP name. That's when they changed to MTT. Uh, oh, oh, boy. I, I think that was, I don't want to lie, that was 2006, 2007 sometime. I, I, I don't want to lie, but oh, yeah. around that time. Uh, and then that company got sold again to a Canadian group called 5N+, which is all chemical production. The, the building still exists. In Lübeck, and we were actually in a garage. You you say that correctly, uh, with other products uh, as part as the tooling, and and what might be interesting to the listeners, we were also not only partly the uh, the European distributor uh, for Envision Tech, Elsie Blani at that time, but we also had plans to make an own uh, plastic 3D printer uh, with Minolta print heads, uh, which probably. Uh, would have been an early binder jetting system or something. But that two prototypes were built. It never made the market because at that time, uh, again, the early 2000s, Stratasys then uh, brought the, the very inexpensive basic FDM machines. And there was no market for a sophisticated machine with a small build platform where you could get 100,000 or more for. And then that would have been the calculated price. So we stopped that project prematurely before it even uh, yeah got to the market. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that you point that out because, like, for example, like, 
uh, well, one of the first things that uh, that the Ailes did was try to build an SLA machine. Right? Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> they, they, I know. They, they, they tried to build their own VAT polymerization machine. They got into a patent fight with Rio Systems. Uh, then there was kind of like a peace between them because they were basically destroying themselves, really. Yeah. There was a peace between them. Uh, meanwhile, there was DTM and company made these fantastic powder bed fusion systems. Um, that was acquired also by 3D Systems, very acquisitive at the time. And then magically at one point, then AOS started making powder bed fusion for polymer systems. Uh, and then AOS or, or, or 3D Systems focused on SLA. AOS stopped yep. doing SLA. And and then later on as well, a 3D system started doing powder bed fusion systems in the States based on its own models, which are kind of derived from the DTM systems, which were made from the original patent by Carl Deckard, originally, yeah. which is the original polymer patent. And this is really interesting. I heard this, and I, I've always wanted to talk this, and we're doing this little impromptu history lesson anyway. Um, and what I was told at one point is that Carl Deckard actually was inspired by 3D system or by the powder bed fusion patent by Star Trek. But not in the way that you maybe think, right? So he was looking at Star Trek, the original series, and that there's a there's a, there's the transporter thing where they transport people, right? Yeah. And apparently he he found out that they that to do that special effect, what they do is they take two panes of glass, and they then drop colored sand in it, and then they re- yeah. I think they reverse that, and then it looks like kind of they use a colored sand, which is approximately the same color as the ensign that is going to be transported, right? And then yeah. they drop that in that uh, two panes of sand. It looks like he's being rematerialized or disappearing. And he was thinking about that and thinking, wait a minute, if we can drop in pieces of sand <laughs> in a particular yeah. pattern to make up a shape, well, maybe that's a technology. And that's the, the origin story for, for powder bed fusion. It, it might be. So he owes IP rights to, to, to Star Trek as a result. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I haven't heard that story. You've got to be careful, Joris. It might be that Hollywood comes around now and wants the yeah. royalty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're going to claim, ah, disclosure. Yeah, we had disclosure. By the special effect. That's all. But anyway. Now that so, you so, say that, Joris, it might be even... Uh, you, you remember, well, I'm, I'm a little bit older than some of us. Uh-huh. Uh, so do you remember the very old movie, The Fly? Where this one scientist unfortunately yeah. gets together in into his, call it Transformer or whatever it's called, yeah, uh-huh. uh, with the fly, and then he comes out with a fly head. <laughs> so and he can yeah. reverse that. So it's a similar idea, isn't it? It's, uh, Oh, maybe, maybe. I didn't think of that. Sure. I have saw that movie, but I got kind of nightmares from that movie, so maybe I'd left that <laughs> from my head. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, so so it was a bit messier, I think, that people noticed, right? And, and yeah. on that polymerization front, there was this whole patent stack by a German company, which was doing DLP, which was then acquired by what later became Envision Tech. And Envision Tech then got a lot of patents that were very similar to the ones that Three Systems had, and they ended up never destroying each other actually in a, in a big patent fight, yeah. just picking out at some other people. So it was really messy in the beginning, and especially with this group of German companies around this powder bed fusion thing, uh, all competing with each other. But I think it was good for for Germany as a cluster, I think, to to do this technology. But when you got there, so you you got that NTT when it was a little bit more professional than the beginning, a little bit more focus on powder bed fusion. How did you get in there? How did you did you just blunder in? Was it just a job to you, or were you like, oh my god, this is the future of everything? Well, it is it is it is one of these uh, simple life stories that you tumble into. It. I was uh, I was a, a young engineer in technical physics who had served uh, in R and D uh, and quality assurance production for his first eleven years of business life, and 
Um, and we were a young family with three little kids. Uh, and because of the three little kids, my wife couldn't work at that time. Uh, there were also medical issues she had to take care of with the kids. That's why she really couldn't work with me. So the family needed more money. So I needed to find a job with more money. In sales and in international sales, there is more money. And turns out this is, well, the late 1990s, we're talking, where internet wasn't the thing, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I remember we, we got the first laptop uh, Acer PCs in Germany for the business, 95 or something. Yeah. Before that, it was huge machines and, and not that qualified. 56K modems came up, right? So so you still were looking for uh, newspaper ads to find a job. And here I live in Lübeck North in Germany and Hack GmbH, the later SLM Solutions, is looking for an export sales manager. As all, as all uh, the inquiries they got from the very big international German shows needed more attention than they had with personal. So I apply for the job. I get three interviews in four weeks with three different people. And here I get the job starting to work all the countries except Central Europe. The whole world was mine. Uh, in this small tooling group, which was only 12 people. And and I think that's an interesting thing for this discussion because you just do not create such people like us these days anymore. What I mean to say by that is a normal management situation would not offer the responsibility for three quarters of the world to one person by various uh, thinkings. It's a uh, risk uh, limitation. It is too much work for one person. It is maybe the next generation doesn't like that business travel so much. I always had 120 to 150 travel days a year for 20 years. Yeah. So uh, taking me away from the family. But money was good because the business was good. And that uh, that put you uh, right into the middle uh, of things to most places of the world, which were the emerging markets. And well, reading the news these days where we have a very difficult political situation in the Middle East, where we have a very difficult political situation in the Russian territory, where we have a very difficult political situation in China. Uh, the last 20 years, a German passport would just board a plane and travel there. No problem. No questions asked. Sometimes you needed to apply for a visa, which you got in less than a week. Yeah. So we had the chance to open markets all over the world, which just right now, and I'm purely speaking technical here, this is not a political discussion, we just don't have the chance to do it because, uh, yeah, because of what we read in the news every day, let's put it that way, yeah? I always say this was the wet dream of a sales engineer, yeah? And wherever you went, you were bringing the New Testament of production, if I want to uh, say it that way, and uh, people invited you, people wanted to hear the news about the technology coming from Europe at that time. People wanted to buy the equipment. In the beginning, it was majorly universities. It was scientific institutions. Uh, but everybody saw the big potential of 3D printing. And you were welcomed all around the globe. And, and it practically was all around the globe, from northern Germany to Australia and New Zealand. No problem. The connections still work today. Yeah, We, we just made uh, Australia the uh, partner country for next year's Formex, the world's biggest uh, trade show uh, in AM in Frankfurt. So this is all uh, the connections, the, the business people, all of us, it's not a single person, all of us in that group at that time were putting the seed 
and now today with more money into the game, with more new next generation people into the game, uh, this is the harvest that comes out of that. I would that's how I think about it. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. And then and but what's the difference then? Okay. Then I think as a sales guy, right? You get all these leads, and one of them is from the, the, the whatever the Laser Institute of Peshawar, Pakistan, or something. It's all it's that kind of stuff, right? And the other one is the University of MIT. You're like, oh wow, it sounds really kind of really exciting. And the other one is, I don't know, Austal or something, or some giant defense contractor somewhere. Mm-hmm. Those those are the companies that were buying in the beginning, right? So yeah. how do you differentiate between that? Because like you said, the beginning it's just you, right? It's yeah. nice to say that you want to travel 120 days a year, but you can only be in one place at the same time. Yeah, right? correct. So how do, you, correct. how do you like score these leads? How do you find out who's like legit and who, who is? Yeah, well, what what we actually did, well, the way I worked, I I, I would assume uh, other company uh, people uh, people in other companies, sorry, did the same. Is we were trying to inquire beforehand, and and I like to repeat, uh, internet played a major role in that uh, moving on and being more and more a source of information. Uh, but we were we were contacting uh, the uh, trade commissions uh, of uh, governments, the trade commissions of other countries. The, as Germany always was uh, a huge export-orientated country, there was a lot of foreign um, representations for industry by the foreign governments. Uh, it just say the, the U.S. Commercial Service has three offices in Germany. Yeah, uh, the Australian Commission of for the Individual in the States have uh, have their offices in Germany. It's not the political embassies; it's more uh, the scientific as well as industry representations. And you would contact them and say, "Hey, listen, we've got a new technology here. This is what it's about. Do you have an idea who might be interested in that?" And that's how you got the first intros. Because if your local government tells you, here's someone from abroad you should speak to, you'll probably speak to him or her, yeah? So, and, and that made it a bit easy to get there. And then you you put a little bit, of, okay, uh, a, a bit of a tic-tac-toe board. We have a technology. The machine's going to cost a million. <laughs> so uh, who is capable of buying that? And And what helped us a lot was here in Europe, uh, now to jump over again. The uh, interestingly, it was not in the U.S. at first in the early 2000s, because here in Europe, the, a lot of Eastern European countries moved into the European Union. Because of that, one of the programs the European Union uh, uh, was issuing is the four frames, five frames, six frames, seven frame programs, where they wanted the Eastern European two universities technical universities to get the same standard of education for engineers uh, to be able to move all around Europe for work with the same basic knowledge. So it shouldn't be like, I don't know, only France, UK and Germany have the knowledge and a lot of the other countries have a lower limited knowledge. That's exactly what uh, the EU wanted to work against. With the big advantage for a sales company with a new technology like this, uh, they were funding machines. So we could we could sell I don't know thirty to fifty machines around Europe in five to ten years just because of funding money the universities got from the EU. So you were at that time because of this situation, the universities were a prime target. 
So you had to find professors who were engaged in this, who were interested in this. You had to help them uh, with the application forms, but it would work over a period of one or two years. This was not a fast sale. So it was always, uh, and, and I believe in most of the cases it still is today, a sales cycle between one and a half to two and a half years from the very first talk to a person getting interested to a machine on site. Uh, so because of all the admin in between, uh, the, the getting budget, uh, the verifying things or preparing buildings and stuff. And, and that's what gave us one push. What is right now, because of the political situation we have, uh, the US is driving this metal AM technology very much by the defense budget allocations they do at the moment. I was once asked in another, uh, in another interview, uh, who I would think is one of the most influential uh, people in 3D printing in this year. And, and my answer is Joe Biden and his team, of yeah. course, just for the pure reason that in the US at this moment, within the defense budget where additive manufacturing is one of the focused prime technologies for independent manufacturing of a, a lot of things, uh, that is one of the prime markets for all the uh, global AM companies, as I feel. Well, I'm don't know at all, but as I feel, so so it's very much uh, an inhibitor uh, uh, or a supporter or an accelerator uh, how the um, political situation in an area is. Take the car industry. The car industry jumped on that a little bit later, and we here as a German company, we experienced the German car industry yeah, as a slowdown, as a break of spreading this technology, because a lot of the German uh, uh, car companies, they had huge subsidiaries in China, they had huge subsidiaries in South America, like in Brazil, but they said, no, 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 Stefan, this is a very new technology. We want to look into this in Germany first to have this competitive edge advantage, and then we think if we like this to be in our subsidiaries in the foreign countries. So it can work against you as well, which which we experienced those days. Yeah. Uh, so and we weren't very happy about it, but that has changed a little bit right now. Yeah. With all the Chinese companies coming up and supporting the Chinese car industry, we see that actually with the electrical vehicles. No, I thought I think I think we're different. Like if we want to continue on the geopolitics, I think now we're seeing a split in the market where it's like Chinese companies sell to Chinese companies and they try to sell in the periphery of Europe, but also like, you know, like into more, ever more closer services, manufacturing companies that have, that are allied with the Chinese government or that have to do with industrialization of the Chinese government. And it's kind of leading to kind of a split. Like, are you okay with working with them or are you not? And yeah. that's a very different situation as well. Yeah. Well, there's an IP scenario on all of this too, right? Because a lot of the Chinese Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, because the IP doesn't necessarily extend into China and therefore they make the machines in China, which is legal, but then they yeah. try to export the machines, but it's violating IP and then, then it's not legal. So it's this weird gray zone as well. Yeah. And we have, we also have a, that might be interesting also for the listeners to this podcast in the U S we, we also, as a European manufacturing industry, we are facing uh, two restrictions. The, the one restriction is direct embargoes by, the European governments. And the second one is indirect embargoes by the US government. So uh, you, you might have a situation, and 
look back two, three years when we had Angela Merkel as the uh, the German Chancellor lady still, she had a politics to, to be very friendly with China and trade. Yeah. I don't mean to comment or value it. I'm just saying how it was. Yeah. So we ran into situations where, where we as a German company uh, could very well trade and sell machinery equipment with China with permission of the German government. However, for certain companies, for certain industries, it might not have been appreciated by the US government at that time. And again, I'm, I'm not taking a position here. I'm just saying how it was. And then when a German company also has a US subsidiary, this is where the tricky things start. So you get an influencing of your trade by a third party. That's also a thing to watch what, what happens. Well, we all learn today that uh, things have changed a lot in China. Uh, and and you're absolutely right with the IP rights. That that is a big discussion here in, in the European Union. That Huawei is banned from uh, public network uh, use or uh, uh, for wireless and stuff like that because people are afraid that within those machines there might be software parts that transport all the IP used in machines. I mean, if you have a 3D printing data file, uh, you don't want this directly to be transferred to China via the internet. And people don't feel very able to control that perfectly, to put it that way. And then this is a bit the scenario where there is a problem both ways in Europe at the moment. So European companies using Chinese equipment present a big question mark to, to be very neutral here. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's going to yeah. be a very difficult decision. I mean, I am fascinated about one thing really, really in particular, and it's Lieberherr. I'm fascinated by the company Lieberherr because it's like a mm -hmm. German family company. It's, it's huge, and it makes essentially really giant excavation equipment, yeah. fridges, and landing gear for aircraft. And I just think that's the most yeah. Not the, the most fridges. Yeah, I can the see most the giant excavating and the landing gears because they sure why not but the refrigerators that's that, there you go <laughs> if you want a really good wine fridge or a hundred ton agree. wine yeah. vehicle Liebherr is fantastic like seriously and i'm fascinated by this company and they did the landing gear integration and a lot of the landing gear work on the comac the early comac uh, planes uh the only comac passenger jets and i still cannot for the life of me i've been thinking about this for years now and i cannot for the life of me understand uh, like figure out if that was a good thing for them or not i don't know you know it is. I think uh, we we also um, had the uh, the connections and the trade with Airbus and all the Airbus sub companies and uh, and I think uh, if if you look at the world uh, of civil aerospace at this moment, you have like four big production companies. The what? The one is the ones in, in Russia, like Ilyushin and stuff, but we don't talk about that because there's a real iron curtain again in, in real life, practically. But the other three are Boeing, Airbus, and Comac, yeah? Uh, so with Avic as the mother company over there in China. And it might be interesting for you to know that, uh, see how time changes. In the, in the year 2016-17, when I was the chairman of the German Standardization Workgroup uh, Additive Manufacturing and Aerospace at the DIN Institute, I also became suddenly, just because of a business visit to China, uh, the contact person between the German aerospace uh, uh, standardization and the Chinese aerospace standardization powered by AVIC a lot. And it was so obvious that the Chinese wanted to drain knowledge and information 
from uh, the Europeans by being part of the uh, international standardization work groups. But here is where it gets technically interesting. I, I believe we all agree that we still want international air traffic and transport. Yeah, civil I'm talking. I'm not talking military. Yeah. Uh, yes. Now you have airplanes made in Europe, airplanes made in the US, and airplanes made in China. And for sure, we have the situation that those airplanes, are, well, meet each other at all the countries in this world. And positively speaking, you do want that on a unified, certified uh, standardization based. So, so here comes the political question to space. Do we want to exclude, say, China from international aerospace standardization, which would mean they cannot fly their airplanes into uh, uh, the Western world, which automatically means there, there would not be any political uh, compromise or interaction being possible. So I think those are also questions that come up where you cannot separate the political view on things totally from the technology view on things. I don't have the answer to those, but they are on the table right at this moment because the European aerospace industry with Airbus uh, as a joint European project powering that, of course they do want uh, they do want business with China for the emerging manufacturing of civil airplanes. At the same time, as we have the Taiwan question at the moment, do we want to support such uh, a government in their views of uh, what belongs to them and what not? And again, I don't have the answer, but it's very difficult to differentiate these days. And, and I think the moment the knowledge and the parts are on the other side, you cannot control that anymore. Well, th this is where we are. And I think it is where we have been with the US-Iranian situation where suddenly all the Boeing jets flying over there did not get serviced anymore with the engines and stuff, with, with all the results that came out of that. And again, I don't have the answer, but here we are with the modern technology right in the middle being a play ball of international politics. And I think we cannot avoid it. We, we have to find a way out of that if we want to spread that technology globally further on. Yeah, but it's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, it's only going to get worse. I, I know, don't have the answer. I don't think it's done toward entropy. A lot of people can't now go to China. You can't even go to visit it now. So, so it's already, it's going to get a lot, lot worse. And even if the politics would stabilize and everything would get good and there's no Taiwan problem, you know, the, 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 the yeah. mistrust is there and it's only going to get it worse. Is, I, think. I, I even heard, it might be interesting for this, I even heard, uh, so the, the one thing you, you might not know because it's very recent, uh, from 1st of December this year, uh, China has opened the borders for five European countries and Germany is one of them. So if I would decide to go to China tomorrow, I could fly even without a visa. And that's more than it used Ooh. to be before. Before I had to apply for a business or a tourist visa. Now I do not even have to apply for a visa. So I could, I could board a plane tomorrow and fly to China with my German passport. That is from 1st of December this year. And it's for five selected countries. Uh, so they, they try to open a little bit, but you are absolutely right. The other thing is that more than 650 million surveillance cameras are around in the country, uh, combined with a software that not only does uh, face recognition, but also moving detection. Yeah. So from, from the moves of your body, the way you walk the streets, it's also a pattern for your personality. Yeah. So they combine the face recognition 
with a moving pattern and have a 99 point something percent match that this is you moving through the country. You have to mm. like it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, anyway you, you have to accept it to go there. Is what you have to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, okay. So let's go a little bit back. So you're doing this pioneering marketing uh, work and stuff. Um, you know, what was it like to see that evolution of of uh, SLM solutions into the much more professional company? You know, that all of a sudden had 300 people, and that all of a sudden, you know, had you know a, yeah. a really professional line. After I think this HL250, I think it was 280. Those ones. Yeah. You know, yeah. What was that like to be there for that that development? It was thrilling. It, it, as I said, the, the, the other the one thing I said, I, I think, to repeat myself, the wet dream of the engineer, the other one is James Bond for the poor. Yeah. So we, <laughs> so we, we were seeing a, a, a real mind-blowing technology coming up so fast and uh, being right in the middle of it. You saw, with a little bit of experience already where you sold it, you saw all these potential applications popping up in your brains and saying, oh, we should ask those people. We should get to those people. So I think the little bit difference between today and 10 years ago is that uh, that we were planting ideas into our application engineers' minds like, have you tried this? Why don't we try together this? Today, a lot of applications have been done. A lot of applications have been approved. And it becomes a bit a race of faster, more accurate, cheaper, uh, smaller machinery or, or bigger machinery if you need big parts. But it's it's not this basis of finding the new unknown applications that much anymore. And we did uh, we did curious things like medical. Let's let's use medical. Uh, we all know today there is uh, approved implants made by metal 3D printing in people running around this world and the people feel healthy and feel fine about it. So when we started that, the surgeons weren't believing us and they had all these questions uh, why it would not work and stuff. But just to make people believe that this was work, we uh, we bought skeletons like these uh, or educational skeletons and just sawing off pieces of the bone, putting in between uh, metal pieces we had built, we had made up. This was obviously not correct surgery, but that standing on medical technology conferences and shows firstly got people's attention to say, wow, how did you do that? Was that done in surgery? No, it was not, but we're looking for applicants and stuff like that. So, so it was a bit a different way of trying to sell that. We did... Genius things, we also did stupid things, like with the uh, backbone implants, yeah? We were just creating implants, which mechanically would have meant to cut the backbone into two pieces to put it into the middle, which obviously would have meant death to the patient, yeah? So, so medically, this was stupidness. However, uh, as a display, it got the attention of people. So uh, also with the, let's say, the winglets of airplanes uh, or... Uh, there, there is a project about winglands for uh, wind energy turbines, uh, which get better efficiently due to uh, to less turbulences at the tip uh, of the energy turbine blades. And we could simulate that in little build simulator like toy train size for the shows. But those were all ideas people didn't have before. And today, 
you present a technology to people, which is a known technology, where people close their doors, they believe you that this technology works, then they close their doors, and then they find their own applications and ideas. But this does not feed back to the manufacturer necessarily. Or you have to file 100,000 NDAs, we all know that, and you cannot use it in your marketing. So we had a more open exchange of ideas and opinions, which was absolutely satisfying and vital. Uh, whereas today, it's a little bit secret spy ping pong. Nobody wants to tell you what he wants to use it for, but he asks you tons of questions, and that works both ways. Uh, so in a way, I do understand the confidentiality of certain projects. However, we are all in the engineering field limiting ourselves a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. one controversial statement. Happy for you to use it for further discussion. Yeah, yeah? so no, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with you. It's it's the the, the my problem, but it's a similar problem. It's, I call it the tip of the iceberg problem. We always talk about the same applications because those are the ones we want to talk. About, we are able to talk about. Right? There's many, many more applications. Like like my best example, the only example I can actually use is nuclear because there were tons of parts mm. being made with nuclear companies. And of course, nuclear companies are not going to do a lot of press. But we use a super cool technology, a super new technology on our nuclear power plant that doesn't really work well for a PR perspective. You know? So it was just unknown. No one could talk about it. Now, only recently, people, these nuclear companies have been qualifying parts and, and admitting to it publicly. And But there's hundreds of stuff, things like this. There's so many applications that I've worked on that we can't disclose. I think we all talk about jigs and fixtures and, and all the same kind of like these molds with the conformal cooling and all this stuff. Because those are the only things we're allowed to talk about and we have concrete business cases. So I do think it super limits us because there's so many other people we could be talking to or could be inspired to talk to us that we, we can't address because of the NDAs and stuff. 100% agree. Yeah, it's it's actually like that. See, two, two examples. You were mentioning GE before. Uh, I'm... I cannot prove, but I'm confident uh, that jet engine manufacturing works perfectly in the three or four plants they have in the U.S. Just nobody knows about it. Yeah. So Siemens Energy um, bu buying up material solutions in the U.K., I do know as a verbal statement from Siemens Energy people in Germany in the south that their production of energy uh, turbine blades works very well in material solutions. Yeah. In in the UK, however, you don't see them. You don't. You, you don't get a video of it or whatever, so people don't know. The third one in Cork and Ireland, uh, Stryker Homedica, yeah. uh, having pumped up that uh, 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 that factory with over a hundred concept laser machines, as I heard, but I have not been let in. And for years now, they're producing perfectly implants that they use in people. It's just not a marketing thing that comes out. So uh, so I 100% agree with what you said. We we probably all could have been a bit further knowing more, but that probably would have been to the disadvantage uh, of the manufacturers who had invested in that. Yeah, yeah totally agree. Sir. One thing I want to ask you, like, it's completely separate, like, but I think it's important. I think AOS is family run. He's got this visionary, super brilliant guy who managed to complete control AOS and then make it a, a big, big company in that kind of way. Right. Trump yeah. is of course, this huge company already with lasers and all these machine tools, you know, they were going to make it if they wanted to make it. Essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but how about, 
SLM, right? SLM was smaller. It, it all of a sudden had a private equity owner. These these guys are horrible to have on your, uh, you know, uh, on your board and all this stuff. And you know, how did SLM Solutions make it? What do you think is the secret to their success? I, I think uh, it's a few people. It's a mix. Uh, having been there for 20 years, and and although my uh, release from SLM after 20 years, it, it, different opinions about things we should call it. Yeah. So it was a mix of the private equity people who have put the money into the company, seeing a big business, but leaving positive decision freedom to the former owners and now shareholders. And uh, and Hans Eder, the old uh, managing director for many years, and now at that time when, when the IPO was done, he was a 25% blocking minority, a biggest single shareholder. So they, they let him influence the ideas they believed in. So they were swimming against the stream for quite some time, but they were believing in their ideas and even putting private money into that. And that is entrepreneurship at its best. And that made it. So uh, I remember personally Hans Eder, who was then my boss and myself, we often had talks. It's like, Stefan, why do you want to fly around the world to Australia? There's such a small market. Yeah. But now we have 50 machines in that market. Yeah. So, but, uh, so, it, we had controversial discussions, but he did leave people the freedom to to work after their yeah analysis and beliefs or and ambition, and that is the same with yours. I think that that made it because Dr. Hans Langer. There were in a lot of companies at the very top. Uh, Scott Crump with Stratasys, of course, is another example. Uh, people who did believe in their ideas and were working with a team of people they believed in and they let go. Of course, some things went wrong. Not everything was perfect. But if the majority of things were working very well, like when I had started 98 in that company, where that was a bit prior to the Metal AM, that was the other rapid prototyping equipment we had. And for the first one and a half to two years, I really was not very successful in my sales efforts. I did a lot of trips. I had a lot of customer contacts. We wrote a lot of reports with the whys and hows, but just the turnover in the balance sheet didn't come around. And I had this one discussion. I went to the boss and I said, Hans, you know, do you think I'm the right guy for the job? Because this is my second year I'm trying and I just don't feel the success. And he said, he looked at that and he said, yes, Stefan, I like that you come asking the questions, but don't worry about it because this industry is new to you at that time it was yeah and this will take one and a half to two and a half years but you will see from that moment on it will come continuously and this is exactly what happened and you only get that if you have the individuals who who can take the the liberty uh, and the luxury uh, of uh, of safeguarding a long-term approach if you have a changing and that is what slm has seen by the way in the last three four years if you have a changing management uh, massively who have to work for better, better, better turnover every year, I think that is not always healthy for this industry because very often uh, it just takes longer to build and establish a, a certain market to make people believe this works, to get the first uh, proof installation that it really works. And then the rest of the people will jump on that. Nobody wants to be the first or guinea pig for that. And that's, 
and, and that's what made the, uh, the, the individually run companies a bit more successful, the smaller units than the very huge ones at that time. But, but then again, uh, also strategists and 3D systems started smaller. They just had 10 years more run before they could be compared with Metal AM. Yeah, the Metal AM practically started 10 years later. So they already had grown quite significantly the time before. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. I think I think an interesting way of uh, looking at that, that the history. I think a lot of the companies are the same. You have a, a, a kind of a founder who's learning to be a businessman while being a research scientist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Freed is the same, for example. A 3D system, same situation. Um, and then, you know, there was just simply not enough. Well, there was a lot of candle power, a lot of smart people, a lot of hardworking people. And no one knew how it was going to be done and no one knew what the right thing to do was. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to give people enough freedom, you know, you had to give enough freedom and, and you had to at one point trust your people because there was no other option. You couldn't just say he's not doing well because you have no idea <laughs> what yeah. he's supposed to be doing. There was no target, right? Like, you know, how do you know, how, how is it? How big is this market? <laughs> Nobody knew, right? No, exactly. So I think that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting way of putting it. So I'm really, really, okay. So Stefan, I think we could talk for hours and hours more. We'd love to have you back. Uh, oh, we'd yeah. love to have you come on, come again, uh, talk again. And thank you so much for your time today. No, absolutely. No, that's fine. And you see, maybe as a final word, you were talking about the big ones. See, we we agree that the two biggest tooling machine manufacturers in the world are Trump and DMG Mori. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Just now, DMG Mori, who did acquire Realizer, had been a partner of SLM before. Uh, so getting into the game, they had restructured everything. So now, now DMG is starting it all over again with a brand new own machine as well. Yes, yeah, so people still believe in this market, uh, and uh, and I do actually speak to DMG and work with DMG about it. Yeah. So it's it's not dead. It needs it needs the foundation of the experience. And I think it's a positive, prosperous development of the market, both for plastics and metals. Uh, whereas for the plastics, all the resources, uh, the, the, the green deal and stuff uh, has more impact on that part of the technology. And it's be very interesting to see how that gets out, other than the metal part of the technology. It's it's still a growing industry. I'm absolutely confident about that. Maybe that's a nice final word. And if the two biggest tooling machine manufacturers in the world stay in it and want to grow in it, it can't be all that wrong, right? Uh, totally, totally, totally. All right. So, Stefan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And, Max, thank you so much for being here as well today. Oh, lovely. I'd love to have the history lesson and a nice geopolitics oh, discussion <laughs> at the same time. So, <laughs> Me <thank> to be. <laughs> All right, and thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and enjoy your day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.